describes the book of Esther this way. He says, Esther is a strange book. It never mentions the name of God anywhere in the entire book. Really. It doesn't mention the name of God anywhere. I spent the better part of six hours this week looking up every book of the Bible and how it begins. In every single book, other than Song of Solomon, God is mentioned almost right away. Think about Genesis, in the beginning, God, Exodus, a few verses after that, we get into um, God remembers His people, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, all of them begin uh, talking about and bringing God into the conversation. It's really only the Song of Solomon that it waits eight chapters to say God's name one time. But the book of Esther never mentions God. Never, not even once. Never mentions prayer. Never mentions angels. It never mentions uh, fasting to the Lord. It talks about fasting. It talks about other things, but it never mentions these core spiritual things that unite the Bible. So people have hated it. Uh, Dr. York continues, he says, you'll find no miracles, no prophets showing up to deliver God's word. There are no plagues sent from heaven. There's not a single prayer breathed anywhere in this book. As a result, it's been largely ignored, sometimes altogether disregarded. If you've ever visited Jerusalem, there is a shrine of the temple, this big a circle-shaped building where they have all the fragments uh, from all the scripture. It's just this amazing book, uh, museum celebrating the Bible. And there is, uh, it says in that shrine, Esther is the one book from the entire Old Testament that isn't found, not even a fragment in the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Qumran community. John Calvin didn't include Esther in his biblical commentaries, and he only referenced it one time in the Institutes. Though Martin Luther included it in his Bible, he was ambivalent about it. He said, quote, I am so great an enemy to Esther that I wish it had never come to us at all, for it has too many heathen unnaturalities. If you look into Adrian Rogers, the great preacher's library of sermons, you will only find one sermon preached from the book of Esther in all of his years of ministry. And as if that weren't strange enough, in the Veggie Tales version of Esther, it's the only one in which Bob the Tomato never appears. <laughs> this is a strange book. And yet in this book, we see the invisible hand of God. And so over the next couple of months, there are a few main questions that we want to ask of this book. You can follow along on your sheet there. We want to ask and discern in this series, is God active even though He might be completely invisible in a secular society? Do we see the hand of God at work when you don't hear the Word of God or see the voice of God or in any way experience God. If He appears invisible, is He active in society? We're going to ask and answer that question. We want to find out what are the gospel and redemptive messages in the book of Esther. 
Because think about it, if the Bible is a record of God's redemptive activity toward man, if it's just a record of what people have accomplished and how God has worked in human history, Esther being included in the 66 books of the Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament, if it's included in our trustworthy Bible, but it never mentions the name of God, surely it has something to contribute to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to discern what redemptive messages we can see that. We're thirdly going to ask this question, how and why does God choose to use broken and imperfect people to accomplish his sovereign purposes? I just want to show you, I don't want to tell everything, but, but Mordecai is a stubborn dude. I mean, he's just a stubborn, headstrong guy. He was told to bow every time Haman comes around, and he just refuses, and it puts his people in great peril. Um, Esther, this, you know, this is the rated Bible version, so some people want to gloss over and act like Esther was this incredibly pure role model. I think you're going to see truthfully from Scripture that she was a broken and flawed person. We're going to find out how and why does God use broken and imperfect people like me and you to accomplish His purposes. We want to understand how God fulfills His promises to His people. That is, if you're in Christ, if you're one of God's people, can you trust that God is going to keep His faithful covenant and promises to you? We're going to ask a tough question about the wicked. Do they prosper? Will those who stand opposed to God succeed? Will there ever be justice for the righteous against the unrighteous? We're going to talk about one of the big reasons this book was written is that it celebrates the salvation, the physical salvation of a people group and the initiation of a festival called Purim. Have you heard of Purim? Uh, Once a year, faithful Jews come together and they read the book of Esther and they hand these noisemakers out to kids. And every time the villain's name is read, they shake these noisemakers and drown out the name of Haman the Agagite. What a terrible name, Agagites, right? And so we're going to understand that forever, if you look at chapter 9, he says forever, this is an institution, a feast for the Jewish people. I was talking to a Jewish lady, an elderly lady, uh, last week and asked her, do you know the feast of Purim? She said, Purim. She corrected me. Yes, I know this. She told me all about it. She told me all about the book of Esther, about how God delivers his people. This lost woman schooled me on this festival. And so we want to, for us, understand and take this as a time. Do you celebrate things that God has done in your past? We often remember difficulties, but we rarely take time to celebrate the good things. And so we want to do that. Why does this book matter? Why would we go back 2,400 years to focus on a book that centers in Iran? What does this matter to you and I? Well, when you seem, when God seems invisible, you need to know that he's active, right? You ever gone through desert times? When you don't hear from God very much? When it feels like he's invisible from your life? John Piper said, God is always doing 10,000 things all around you, and you may only be aware of three. You know, in desert times, you may not even be aware of three. (laughs) You may wonder, where's God? Has he been around? Is he active? Is he not active? Why don't I hear from him? You need to know that. You need to know that all of redemptive history points to the cross. 
And this book contributes to that. You need to know that God uses broken people. Are you broken? Are you imperfect? Is there hope for you? Can God actually use you? This book will answer those questions. It'll help you with assurance. Do you struggle with assurance? Do you doubt that you're actually saved? When I became a believer, a guy asked me a question. If you died today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? And as a kid who didn't believe in God, as a 17-year-old who didn't believe in God, I, I didn't know. This book will press into your assurance. This book will help shed light on the fact that we see wicked, sinful people who seem to have it all together. Do you ever struggle with that? Why do sinners win, right? Why do bad people, why does it seem like everything goes well for them? And finally, we'll see, do you take the time to remember and celebrate what God has accomplished in your life? So each week we'll consider one of these bigger themes while we also consider smaller themes from each chapter. So with that, let's read chapter 1 together. Let's read chapter 1, and this is our only focus for today. Uh, Out of these 9 or 10 sermons, we'll focus on chapter by chapter. And let's read together Esther chapter 1. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all of his officials and servants. The army of Persia, which is enormous, and Media, and the nobles, and the governors of the provinces were all before him, while he showed them the riches of his royal glory, and the splendor, and the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Let's pause there. This is a six-month celebration of Xerxes, right? This is a parade. This is a celebration of how rich he is, of how nice looking he is, of how powerful he is, of how much power he has over everybody. This is a six month party. When we first moved to Philadelphia, it was 2007 of December. And shortly thereafter, the Philadelphia Phillies, I don't know if you've heard this, but they won the World Series. Uh, right after that, and we, I thought, I've got to take my kids. We've got to go to this parade. And we went down to this parade. We hadn't been here for very long at all. And we took a train. We'd never taken a train. They don't have really trains in Oklahoma unless they're like freight trains. But, but we went down there, and we got down to this area by the city hall. And uh, the Wanamaker building was right behind us. And as this parade with all the Phillies came around, it was this incredible sight. Ellie and Kennedy were with me. I think you guys were just really little. But, but all these streamers coming down and this incredible scene. How many of you were at that parade? Just one. Me and you and a couple of others, a handful of us. We were there and it was just this enormous sight to behold. And when I think about that, I think about Xerxes with the millions of people in his kingdom coming to celebrate him in this enormous party that lasted 180 days. Verse 5, when those days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a seven-day feast in the court of the gardens of the king's palace. So after the big party, there was just a little local party. For seven days, Xerxes held a feast for all the regular people, 
And we have some details about the, uh, the garden party, so to speak, of uh, Susa. I'm not sure who the author is, but listen to some of the details that he gives us. Verse 6, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple and silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. This gives us insight into king's parties. right? If you were at the feast with the king and he took a drink, then you could take a drink. If he didn't take a drink, you didn't take a drink. But in this seven-day feast, all these sort of rules, these royal rules were relaxed. And you could just drink all you wanted. There was no compulsion. There was no threat of penalty. If you want to have a drink, man, you could just have a drink with the king and you had all his permission. We also learn that the king had given orders to all of his staff of his palace to drink as much as each man desired. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And so we see in this that there might have been a division between the men and the women. The men were eating and drinking together and the women, because they were sort of left out of this seven-day feast, they had their own thing. On the seventh day, verse 10, when the, king, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded his seven eunuchs, Mehemim, Bista, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, just in case you're looking for baby names. There's a good list of them there. These are the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the people and the princes her beauty because she was lovely to look at. I don't know what to do with this passage. I mean, here's a drunk king... He's been drinking for seven days straight. He's got a very attractive wife, queen. She's somewhere else in her own festival, in her own feast, doing her own thing with the ladies. And here come these seven eunuchs in to fetch her so that she can come present herself to a horde of drunken men. Verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this time, the king became enraged and all of his anger burned within him. Then the king said to all the wise men who knew the times, for this was his procedure toward all those who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marys, Marcina, and Memacum, the seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of the king, Ahasuerus, delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mimicum said in the presence of the king and his officials, hey, not only has she uh, done wrong against you, but she has also done wrong against all the officials and the peoples who are in the province of the king Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all the women, causing them to look at all their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. 
This very day, all the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will rise up and say to all the king's officials, there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the law of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be replaced that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. What is he talking Better, because someone who will come dance before us when we're in these drunken feasts. I don't know how she could be better. Vashti sounds like a decent lady here. Verse 20, so when the decree was made by the king, was proclaimed throughout all of his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will honor their husbands, high and low alike. And this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucum proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, so that every man will be the master of his household and speak according to the language of his people. What are we supposed to do with this sermon, with this passage? I tell you what jumps out at me and what I, what I want to focus the remainder of our time here together. Is that when I read through this book, I see a negative example of life lived in the flesh. I just see a really negative example of life lived in the flesh. Do you understand what I mean by flesh? When we say flesh, we talk about... Um, life controlled by your human emotions, uh, life controlled by your sinful desires, life that is directed by the course of temptation and the course of culture and the course, really just um, life as if it were in a boat being carried along a stream and you're just sort of following. It's like the Forrest Gump thing, right? It's just a feather floating on the wind and wherever it kind of leads you. Life in the flesh is like that. It does what it feels. It says what it thinks. It goes where it wants. It gives in to temptation whenever it feels like. If it feels good, it indulges in it. Uh, If it's wrong or right, it doesn't matter. Life in the flesh describes life with you on the throne of your life. That's life in the flesh. And when I read this chapter, I see life in the flesh. Six months of celebration and parades and feasts and drinking and women and all the things that went on here for six months. And then followed by a seven-day drunken feast that ends with the queen not coming to appear before these drunk men. I see this separation, this unhealthy separation between men and women where women are rising up against the men and the men are rising up against the women so that they will be our subjects and we will be the masters of our household. The fear, the paranoia, the strife, the struggling between men and women that we see in the curse from Genesis Chapter 3, that part of the sin's curse is that the woman's desire will be over her husband. She will want to have authority over him, but he will rule over. This sort of battle of the sexes. See, in all these places, a celebration of the flesh. We see a negative example of life lived in the flesh. So how are we supposed to understand life in the flesh? What should you do? How does this apply to us? We see the disastrous, 
destructive consequences of living according to your flesh in this chapter. The concept of flesh is really filled out in the New Testament. Romans 4.1 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to his flesh? That is spiritually, he didn't accomplish much according to his flesh. Romans 7, 5 says, While we were still living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Your flesh is the same as your sinful passions. Romans 7, 18 says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. He says, but I have the desire to do what is right, but I can't carry it out. Do you remember this passage that Paul says? I know the good things I should do. I know the bad things I shouldn't do. But man, if I just keep giving in to the things I shouldn't do and not doing the things I should do. Can anybody relate to that? This is the tug of war happening in your flesh. Where your sinful passions are at war with your the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. And that's a battle that we will face in our time together. Turn over to Romans 8, because Romans 8, he gets into a long, in-depth explanation of this war that is taking place in our flesh. In Romans chapter 8, Verses 1 through 9. Paul describes to the believers living in Rome this difference between life in the Spirit and life in the flesh. He says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. What a great verse, right? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You feel condemned and you're in Christ Jesus? It's not from God. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He goes on to explain, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You have freedom. For God has done what the law that was weakened by the flesh couldn't do. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So let me just kind of summarize that. The law is hard. If you ever tried to obey the law, especially just summarized in the Ten Commandments, uh, you shall not, you know, just the last five, you shall not murder. Jesus said that's hatred. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus said that's lust. So if you, if you struggle with hatred or lust, man, you're in a bad spot. Uh, he says you shall not steal. You shouldn't take anything irrespective of its value. You should never take anything. Uh, you shall not lie and you shall not covet. Those are just the last five of the Ten Commandments. In addition to honoring your father and mother, honoring the Sabbath, uh, not having any gods before him, not taking the Lord's name in vain, all of those things make us all guilty under the law. All of us. There's not a single one of you who has kept all Ten Commandments perfectly. Is there? Anybody? Who's bold enough to say it's me? (laughs) Maybe even this morning you broke like half of the Ten Commandments. But Jesus set us free. 
from that law, right? That's what Romans 8 just said. The righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled because Jesus fulfilled it. That's good news. But now we have an obligation not to walk according to the flesh, the sinful passions that try to reign over you. Verse 5, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Verse 8, those who live in the flesh cannot please God. I mean, that's just really clear. Right? You're saved. You've given your life to Jesus Christ. The penalty of sin is canceled on your behalf. And now, as a new believer in Christ, as a faithful believer in Christ, you're free. And Scripture says, but not free to live according to your flesh. You're not free just to live by your sinful passions. Because those who do that, they just can't live a life pleasing to God. God's not going to be pleased with it. He's not going to bless sinful decisions. He just won't. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Verse 12. So, brothers, we're debtors not to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit... You put to death the deeds of your body. You will live. This is where we want to focus in our last few minutes together. How do you live by the Spirit? How do you crucify the sinful desires of the flesh? Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. No longer I who lives, but Him who lives through me. Galatians 5 describes the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And you have... The choice as a believer in Christ to be led by your sinful passions and to give in to them. You can do that. But the warning of Scripture is that you won't be pleasing to God and your life will be marked by death and chaos and destruction and struggle and hard relationships and difficulty. How many of you have lived in your flesh for a while? Man, not fun, is it? I mean, eventually you come to a point where, like the prodigal son, you're, you're starving and you look at the pig's food and you're like, that kind of looks good. I may eat some of that. And then you come to your senses and you realize, if I should return to my father, how many more of his servants have everything they need and are blessed? And this is the point that we almost come to where if we've lived in our flesh long enough, you get sick of your flesh to the point where you realize life in Christ is the way to go. Right? Amen? How many of you have lived according to the Spirit and you have experienced the joy that's not dependent on circumstances? You've experienced the provision that God gives you. You've experienced peace in your life. You've experienced hope and forgiveness and mercy and usefulness 
in Christ. I had a weird thing happen to me in 1995. I'd been a believer for three years. I'd just come to Christ and, and had this 180 degree turnaround and really grew in my faith incredibly and to the point where after a year the Lord called me into ministry and I went to a Bible school in a small town in Arkansas and, uh, and I began to study and read scripture and learn and grow and I got into a really good group of, of strong Christian guys and this, this sort of thrust into Christianity and the life change and the usefulness and the blessing, all these things were so overwhelming that it really catapulted me into three or four years of just incredible growth. I, I couldn't stop reading scripture. I couldn't stop witnessing to people. I couldn't, I was just on fire for the Lord. Uh, but something happened around 1995. I don't know what it was, if it was just fatigue, if it was, but I, I just intentionally closed my Bible, just kind of walked away from the Lord intentionally for like a month. And by the end of that month, I began giving into temptation. I began struggling. I began to just not have much of a heart for the Lord anymore. Songs didn't wow me. I was constantly checking my watch and sermons, just like a few of you today. I, you know, I was just eager for something else. I wasn't fascinated with things of the Lord. I, I was more interested in what I was doing on Friday nights with friends and Really, just to be honest, just sinful, fleshly behaviors. I just was very much into that for that three, four, five, six-week period. It lasted probably a total of six weeks. I'm in Bible school, by the way. I'm taking Bible ministry classes. <laughs> but I'm just I, just, I just struggled. I don't know if you've ever been there before. Just giving in. And so, like the prodigal son feeding on pig's pods, right? And I finally looked up and said, There's, this, is not, this is no way to live. This is no way to live. I need to get right with the Lord. So I went out and I just I took a long prayer walk, read a lot of scripture, prayed, confessed, repented. Have you ever had a session like that? Just an on your knees before the Lord kind of time. A clearing house of confession, right? I did it all. And I felt great. At the end of that time, I felt really renewed. I experienced the mercy, the forgiveness, the grace of God. His mercies are new every morning, Ecclesiastes said. There's grace, there's mercy, there's all these things. And at the end of it, I was just incredibly amazed at our for the forgiveness that God offers. But then at the end, God did something funny. He said, I want you to write down all the sins that you've committed. I said, okay. And so I wrote them all down. And I just felt led to do that. I wrote them all down. And then by the time I wrote all the embarrassing things I had done on a piece of paper, I clearly sensed the Lord saying, I want you to tuck that in your pocket and take it to the campus worship service tomorrow night and confess it. And I kind of swallowed hard. And, Excuse me? What did you say? What do you want me to do? And so I, I did. I had a cool jean jacket because that's what you wore in 1994 and I tucked it in the pocket and I, I you know I walked over to Rayleigh Chapel and there were two or three or four hundred people starting to gather my peers my Bible student friends my 
brothers and sisters in Christ, many of whom had no idea uh, what I was doing in my flesh, in my sinful... I was embarrassed. And so I thought, well, if there's an opportunity, maybe the Lord is just testing me. Maybe this note of sin in my pocket is just a test. And so like Abraham in Genesis 22... Right, he's supposed to sacrifice his son, but then God stops him. So I, I get it, God. I'll, I'll pass this test. You don't really want me to confess. You just want me to be willing to confess. So if they offer us an opportunity to confess, I'll do it. But if they don't, I will have passed the test. Right? The willingness. Zach, they sing their welcome song. Zach, one of my good buddies. John Shirley, another good buddy of mine. They're leading the worship team. And after the first song, there's just a sort of a pause while three or 400 students are listening in. And Zach says, I don't know if you've heard what's been taking place in Brownwood, Texas. The two students from Howard Payne University walked up to Coggin Avenue Baptist Church uh, pastored by a man named John Avant, I believe. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But, but they walked up and they began to confess sin. And what broke out was this revival service. And for the last three days, all uh, this church has been packed with people coming to confess sin. And on Tuesday, students from that Howard Payne University went to other churches and other universities all over Texas And what happened at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas, was those two students came up and gave a report, and immediately the aisles were full, and students began lining up to confess their sin, and they canceled all the classes, and those services are happening. This is Thursday, by the way, in the little town of Arkadelphia, Arkansas. Look it up. It's a funny little place in Southwest Arkansas, but... But all this has happening all over churches and universities everywhere, and so sure enough, Zach says... If you feel like God wants you to come up and confess sin, I want to give you the opportunity. And I just got a big lump in my throat and I swallowed hard and I I lowered my head and I walked over to the side, my head down the whole way. I walked a long aisle, the only one moving, right? I'm instantly moving. I'm getting up. I'm walking over and I stand up to the podium just embarrassed And I pulled this list out of my pocket and I looked up and there was nobody there. Everybody in my line of sight, there was no one in my line of sight. Everybody had begun filing over, filling out the sides of the aisle. And as I began to read the list of egregious, embarrassing, intentional, fleshly sins that I had committed against the Lord and against the body of Christ, a beautiful thing happened. God began to just pour out His Spirit and mercy and grace and forgiveness and brokenness. It was a cathartic experience, a cleansing experience. That night we continued to pray and worship and confess until almost 4 a.m. I'll never forget that time of not just living in my flesh and the pain that it caused, the difficulty, the embarrassment, but also the time that God restored that. And so I just want to ask you here in this place today that if if you feel like you've been walking in your flesh and the sinful passions that have carried you, I just want to offer the same thing Zach offered to me. Maybe you'd like to come up and just spend some time in confession. Spend some time in prayer. 
I don't usually do this. It's not a guilt trip. I'm not trying to get numbers of people up here for some sort of false humility. If no one comes, it's fine. But I just wonder if you're tired of living in your flesh. If you're experiencing the brokenness, the struggle, the difficulty, the destruction of living in sin, and you would like to receive forgiveness and mercy. You can do it from where you are. But there's just something special about confessing your sins publicly. So I'm just going to be here, and I'm going to ask Jeremy and the band to come up, and they're going to play uh, just instrumentally, not for a long time, just for a few minutes.